This represents my first day as an executive director of a small arts organization. I walked up to the front door of this particular building um, to become the ED of an organization called Intersection for the Arts. And the man who had been the interim ED until I arrived was outside sweeping the sidewalk. And he said to me, what I like about being an executive director is there's so much variety. And I have often um, thought of that as truer words were never spoken. I loved being an executive director. It pulled on every bit of wit and reason and heart that I had. And it was, I've been very lucky to work for a foundation for almost 25 years now, but this particular job was what uh, whooped me into shape and taught me what I think I know about leadership. So how did I get there? I have a creative writing degree. I was talking to a couple of you. My, my passion in life is poetry. And when I came out of graduate school, I had this life plan, which was, because I typed quickly, I would type on businesses' very nice IBM Selectrics. That's sort of a representation of my age and, uh, during the day. And then I would go home, and I would write poems on my very elegant little Smith Corona that my father had bought me. And I had a typing job. I worked at San Francisco State for a while after I graduated, and then I uh, took a job at a small firm, a, a private firm, that raised money for nonprofits. And so I was typing. I was typing the same fundraising letter to the, um, inviting people to come to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund annual dinner over and over and over. And um, it wasn't a very well-written letter that I was typing over and over, and that was bugging me. And I had kind of a scary boss, but I got my courage together, and I went into her office, and I said, you know, if this sentence read like this, and this sentence read like that, this letter would be clearer and uh, more elegant. She gave me this weird look. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be fired. Uh, she'll keep me to finish typing this stack of letters, but then I'm going to go. And she went down the hall into one of the partner's offices. And so then I was really sure I was going to be fired. And um, when she came out, she said, Lori wants to see you. So I went in, and Lori said to me, um, Sally says you like to write. I said, well, yeah, I have a creative writing degree. I like to write. And she said, we all hate to write. We like to go out and meet people or talk to them on the phone and ask them for money. We're going to make you our writer. We're going to send you to the Grantsmanship Center. You're going to become our staff writer. And um, so by being myself in that moment, um, this was what I had learned about typing for a living, was that the, the uh, elegant concept of being an actor driving a cab is actually maybe not the best life choice, that I got to advance because I like to write. And um, so I, my next idea was that after working at this firm for eight years, I decided that I wanted to take what I had learned and actually apply it to the work of a specific nonprofit that I got to choose that I care deeply about. And, I, you know, when you know how to raise money, boards think that's all you need to know because small nonprofits always need money. So I had been, I knew development, 
and I was promptly at the top. Or as my predecessor said to me, um, it's easy to get to the top at a small nonprofit because there are only two rungs on the left. Welcome to 501c3BS. I'm your host, Sue Velasco, director of the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton's Mihalo School of Business and Economics. Join me today as we debunk the myths of the social sector. We will cut down the weeds and clear your path for organizational growth. Francis Phillips is the program director for the arts at the Walter and Elise Haas Fund in San Francisco, but best known as the co-author with Stan Hutton of the best-selling book in our sector, The Nonprofit Kit for Dummies, now in its fifth edition. She was previously executive director of Intersection for the Arts and director of the Poetry Center at San Francisco State University. She is co-editor of the Grants Makers in the Arts Reader and author of three books of poetry and reviews poetry, fiction, and nonfiction for local and national newspapers and journals. She holds a Master's of Arts degree in Creative Writing from San Francisco State University and a Bachelor of Arts in Literature and Languages from Reed College. Having literally written the book on our sector, and the best-selling one at that, we asked Francis about leadership, and she took the challenge as an opportunity to interview peers about leaders they admire, and then told us a great story from her own leadership career. Ladies and gentlemen, Francis Phillips. Uh, Zoo, when he invited me to give this keynote, I had a moment of thinking, I'm happy to speak at this conference, but leadership is not the thing I know about. Unlike many of my peers, I have never gone, well, only slightly gone to a leadership training. And many colleagues and other professionals I'm around all the time have gone out and trained themselves a lot. And I actually think that one of my big mistakes as a nonprofit ED was getting caught up in the endless details of the work and not stepping back to take time to reflect. If I could redo it, I would change that. So what I did was I um, interviewed six people who were close to me in my professional circle, all of whom I knew had done various kinds of leadership programs, because I was interested in knowing what they cared about, what they'd learned, what they'd taken away from these various programs. And of course, they didn't do every single thing. That's possible, but they'd done quite a few of them. And while my group is all, they're all kind of progressive, they may seem all similar to you, but I chose them specifically um, to be different. They were gay, straight, uh, different cultural backgrounds at different ages. I was interested in whether a 28-year-old's vision of leadership would be different from a 65-year-old's. And a little illustration of their differences, one of the people I interviewed was Roberto Hernandez, who's a community organizer, and among other things, was he, he manages the Lowrider Club in San Francisco, and that white car, he's giving our mayor a ride in the Cinco de Mayo parade. And then on the right, John Kolaki, who until recently was the head of the Flynn Center for Performing Arts in Burlington, Vermont, for relaxation, he competitively, he competitively drives a pony cart in horseshoes. Uh, John's disabled, so this is um, something that he can really do as an athlete. And the other people I talked to were a young woman named Ayushi Roy, who used to be my Coro fellow for a month, and she's a project manager at 18F, which is a tech startup that works with government. 
Zachary McRae, who was the education program officer at the Walter and Elise Haas Fund, until today, because he's entering grad school in city planning at Berkeley starting this next weekend. My boss, Jamie Allison, um, who's the executive director of the Walter and Elise Haas Fund. My coworker, Stephanie Rapp, who manages the Jewish Life Program at the Haas Fund. And then I've told you about Roberto and John. So one of the first thing I asked them was, whom do you admire as a leader? And I bet that, uh, and actually we heard around the room your choices, none of whom will appear in these slides, but <laughs> the qualities of the people they chose, I recognize from the answers that all of you gave. So one of the qualities was courage. Zach is a young African-American Salvadorian man raised by a single mother looks to the leaders of the civil rights movement to, in his mind, why do we only valorize Martin Luther King? And he was at the time reading about Malcolm X. And so he cared about people who were really kind of willing to put their lives on the line. Um, Roberto Cesar Chavez. Um, in Roberto's case, I'll give you a short backstory. Roberto was going to a public school in San Francisco where many of the kids are Latino now, but when he was young, they were all black or white, and he was Latino, and he got in trouble at school for speaking Spanish, and he was furious, and he was acting out, he was running with gangs on the street. His dad, when he was 12, sort of took him in hand and said, uh-uh. You're changing your course. And you put him on a bus to Delano to volunteer for the summer with United Farm Workers. And I think that all of us think of Cesar Chavez as the great speaker, orator, negotiator. Uh, Roberto said, actually, that Dolores Huerta was the better negotiator, harder-headed, more. But that Cesar's ability was to bring everybody together in a circle, to listen to what everybody had to say. And that quality of listening was what had stuck with Roberto his whole life as a leader. So then my second uh, sort of trait that came across was a kind of quiet consistency. The people, in Ayushi's view, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is somebody we admire because she cares about causes that are larger than herself. She wasn't necessarily out there seeking the limelight, but it came to her because of the quality of her work over time. And I have to say, I cannot hold a plank as long as that woman, I, and I, I she really makes me ashamed when I'm in Pilates class. Um, John chose Wendell Berry as somebody who has lived and worked in a small community, but what he's written and spoken about over time about sustainable agriculture and the importance of civic life and the importance of caring for one another in a small, from a small place really resonates out across the nation. And as John said, you know, it's like he has it right for where we went wrong. My boss, Jamie Allison, moved to San Francisco from Chattanooga, Tennessee because of this woman, 
This is Angela Glover Blackwell. She's the founder of PolicyLink, which is a think tank that is devoted to equitable access for all from all races and communities. And I think Jamie's big point of admiration for her is what a great communicator she is, that she's able to talk about complex ideas and through story and uh, kind of her person able to really make that um, digestible. And um, Ayushi, I allowed a couple people to have two choices. She chose Hillary Hartley because she was looking for a role model in technology. Hillary was a presidential fellow during the Obama administration and created 18F, which is this tech company that works with government to really rethink what we need in terms of federal policy around technology. She's now the... Um, uh, I'm forgetting her exact title. She's the she's um, the technology person for the province of Ontario, Canada at this point. Hillary. Um, I threw in Toni Morrison. I imagine all of us have thought about Toni a lot in the last two weeks because of her dying. But I chose her in part because she's such an extraordinary writer, but also that she created a path for other writers and that she brought them into the publishing house at Random House when she was an editor there. So people who are willing to be mentors and create opportunities for others coming behind them. And then she apologized for perhaps being a kiss-up, but my colleague Stephanie chose our boss, <laughs> Jamie Allison. And it's because Jamie really feels as if her, sex is, or her success is based on the success of the people that she's working with, that she pays, pays that kind of close attention to bringing out when they do things well. And Stephanie pointed to a couple of her grantees who are really charismatic, who are great public speakers. And Stephanie said, but you know, I know some of the people who work for them and they're really not very helpful, happy, and they're not taken care of well. And ultimately, I don't think that serves leadership well. My finale person from the arts, if any of you ever saw the performance art team of Ico and Coma, this is Ico, who now is doing um, solo work and working with different collaborators after having a long career with a specific co-artist. And John's com John Kalaki's comment was, it's so hard to make a career in the arts. And many people who we consider to be fairly successful kind of make a splash for four or five years and then we don't continually continue to hear about them. So people who are continually remaking themselves and questioning and inventing that that's a really important quality. Um, so what did I take away from talking to these people? One is the importance of listening, that sometimes it can be more important than public speaking, communicating out. It's important to lead a blended life, not a separation of all your different parts. And if you're only bringing part of yourself to your work, you're probably not leading to your ultimate capacity. And you really need to know who you are and your story, your values, your traumas, because then when the hard thing comes, you are prepared for it. You can respond. 
So um, one of the things that John said to me in our interview that I think is oh so true and that I've been thinking about a lot since talking to these people is you don't get to choose your leadership moment. It's like, oh, you're president during Hurricane Tr uh, Katrina? Huh, you're going to have to deal with that. You know? uh, Arab Spring? There's a tough one. You know, good luck. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about my leadership moment, or a leadership moment. Imagine back, maybe, if you can, to my very first slide of 766 Valencia. Now, I was not alive in 1906, but <laughs> if I were, and if I were standing at the location of 766 Valencia, I would be having this view as I looked across the street and to my right, the Valencia Hotel collapsed, five stories pancaked onto one another, and many people died. It's one of the iconic images of the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco. So we were just across the street. We had a creek running under our building. Our building was not attached to its foundation. A geotechnical engineer had told me that if there were a bad earthquake, our building could hop out into the middle of Valencia Street. There was a bad earthquake. It did not hop, but my board went out of there, and my staff we had moved to that building about two years before my arrival in 1988. Our big earthquake of my leadership era was 1989. My staff had spent two prior years adjusting to a move to that location, to fixing up the building, had put their hearts and souls in it. They did not want to go. And we had some artists performing in our theater who really needed the money that we were going to pay them, and we were paying them a combination of a flat fee plus a door split, and they needed that money. So you would think that public safety would be a shared value, but in tough times, people have a heart, you know, it's destabilizing when something really, really challenging arises. And frankly, my board and staff and the artists were at one another's throats. And it was a really tough moment. So I moved us down the street. We went down the block. We went to, I'm going to go back and forth a little bit, this building. And if there's a central metaphor to my talk, it's sweeping. My tech director and I were driving down Valencia Street one day, and we had never noticed this building because the roll-down door was always rolled down, but it was rolled up, and the owner was out in front sweeping, and he said this to us, do you need a building? Have I got a building for you? And indeed, it was a smaller, it was like a little shoebox of a building. It was 5,000 instead of 10,000 square feet, but it was like a rock. <laughs> it was like his parents, his father had built it, and um, had really, really, really reinforced it. So it did not need a lot of work to be brought up to code. Um, so I moved us there, and I also, before moving us there, I talked to everybody in the neighborhood. Neighbors, um, the police, talked to them, and people said, oh, that was a really tough block, but don't worry, it's all cleaned up now. However, we go back to this side. <laughs> 
The reason it was all cleaned up was two months before our move, there had been a huge cocaine bust in Southern California. Three warehouses full of the product had been seized, and so there was nothing on the street at the time we moved in, and six months later when we opened to the public, we were in crack cocaine village. It was really tough. Um, so how did we, and I say we because I couldn't do this alone, how did we get through this in our sweet little building? One was we had to reach beyond ourselves. We were about being avant-garde and a little challenging, a little provocative, difficult. We had to invite in the neighbors. And we had to learn things like we created a teenager's theater group. We thought that would mean that their parents would come see them perform. No. <laughs> We allowed neighbors to come into our space and host garage sales in it. They all came for that. So we had to keep testing and modifying how we behaved, how we would fit into this community. It was really important to me that people cared about us and considered us to be good neighbors. That seemed to be the fruit, uh, the possibility of our survival. So we worked across the city with all sorts of departments about planning. My husband would say, Francis is hanging with the fuzz now. <laughs> I needed them. We really had to take care of one another, be kind to one another, to reinforce one another's work, and to not leave anybody alone in the building ever. And we also had to think about the art that we were presenting that would be meaningful to that place and time. Um, and it worked. Now, I gotta say, gentrification kind of helped make it work. Uh, three years later, our particular street corner was called the second hippest street in America next to a street in New Orleans. But this was, we were there at a tough moment when we came in. This is my final image, the gold fire hydrant. This has kind of been a talk about earthquakes. Um, the gold fire hydrant, after the 1906 earthquake, the water mains all broke in San Francisco. And the earthquake actually caused less damage than the fire that followed. And of course, the fire was rampaging because the water mains broke. But this one fire hydrant continued to work. And the artist, Chris Kamater, um, painted it gold. And so I'm just leaving it here for you to remember as filling the purpose for which you were meant to, that you were meant to fill, and serving something that's larger than yourself, and how that's the ultimate meaning of leadership. listening to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco. 501c3BS is sponsored by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. 
Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First 100 Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choro group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS. Thank you.